You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 142, Disease in the Revolution. I said last week I would be covering Burgoyne's Northern Army as it prepared to attack Fort Ticonderoga this week. However, I changed my mind. I'm going to do something a little different this week. Normally, I cover a specific event in time during the American Revolution. But as the COVID-19 pandemic spreads across the world, I thought it would be interesting this week to take a broader look at disease in the American Revolution. In the 18th century, disease was a part of life and a common cause of death. For those of us who live in the 21st century and who take antibiotics and advanced medical care as a given, it may be hard to appreciate how far we've really come from a time when amputations with dirty saws and unwashed hands were the norm and a simple cold could kill you. The 18th century was a time that, if you lived to adulthood, you had beaten the odds. Infant mortality rates from that era, which are sketchy and can vary depending on your source, seem to show that your odds of making it to 10 years old was about 40%. Less than a third made it to age 20. Europeans had brought many diseases to North America, which famously wiped out more than 90% of the native population. The reason the pilgrims were able to settle in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and found good farming land there ready for planting, was that explorers had traveled through that same area while infected with smallpox a few years earlier and wiped out every member of the tribe that had lived there. Disease in the colonial era was always a problem, but wars always made a bad situation worse. Crowding people together in large groups, providing inadequate food or poor access to fresh foods, and putting soldiers under exposure all led to high death rates among the military without a shot being fired. The British Army calculated that it lost about 11% of its soldiers just transporting them across the Atlantic Ocean. It was an expectation that an army would lose a fair portion of its soldiers to disease in any given year while out in the field. On the American side, less than 7,000 soldiers were killed in action during the course of the war. Conservative estimates say that at least 17,000 died from disease, and that's almost certainly an underestimate. A great many sick soldiers went home or left for civilian care and died from their disease without being counted. Some estimates put the number at over 60,000, or about nine times the number of battle deaths. That's also just counting soldiers. The movement of troops spread disease all over the continent. Civilians and soldiers alike contracted the disease and died. In only one year, 1777, and only from one of many diseases, smallpox, estimates are that over 100,000 soldiers and civilians died. Smallpox was one of the most virulent killers of the era. If you caught smallpox and survived, you had immunity. George Washington had traveled to Barbados as a teenager 
and contracted the disease there. This probably saved his life during the war as smallpox ravaged his army. However, he had pockmarks on his face for his entire adult life as a result of contracting the disease. Some have speculated that smallpox may have rendered Washington unable to have children. Infertility is sometimes a result of a smallpox infection. By the way, Washington was not traveling to Barbados for spring break. He went with his older brother Lawrence, who had contracted tuberculosis. It was thought that the climate there in Barbados would help Lawrence to recover. It did not. As I said, Washington contracted smallpox, and the two brothers spent a few miserable months on the island before returning home to Virginia. Lawrence died from tuberculosis the following year at age 33. After his death, George inherited the home that his brother had named after the man he had served under while a Marine in the British Navy, Admiral Edward Vernon. Smallpox was the most deadly disease of the era. Typically, among Europeans, the death rate was around 30%. Without any real prevention or cure, it would spread through regions until enough people had died off and the rest had socially distanced themselves that it went away. It would usually come back again in a few years when people had gone back to normal living and another infected person introduced it into the community. A smallpox infection initially presented itself by causing headache, chills, backache, high fever, vomiting, and anxiety. These occurred about 12 days after exposure, giving the infected person time to spread it to others before falling ill. About four days after feeling symptoms, the victim would suffer a rash on the face, chest, arms, back, and legs. The rash would turn into sores around the mouth, throat, and nasal passages. After that, pustules, or pox, would pop up all over the skin of the person. The density of the pox usually indicated the chance of death. If the patient survived, the pox would turn into scabs and eventually fall off, leaving a scar on the skin. If the patient survived this for about a month, he or she would likely recover. The patient would no longer be infectious only once all the scabs had fallen off. A smallpox epidemic broke out in Boston during the siege of 1775. The British commander, General Gage, had to quarantine infected patients to limit its spread among the British regulars as well as the civilian population. In November, Gage forced several hundred sick civilians to leave the city where they passed through the American lines. This, of course, spread the disease to the Continental Army as well. There, General Washington had to order quarantines, or what they called isolation, to help prevent its spread. It was one of his first orders of business. The day before he formally took command of the Continental Army, on July 3, 1775, the Army received orders that called for the appointment of a, quote, suitable person to make daily inspections of the men of each company for illness and any soldiers showing symptoms of smallpox to be isolated immediately. Two days later, Washington also issued orders cautioning against soldiers traveling to infected areas, quote, as there may be a danger of introducing smallpox into the Army. A few weeks later, Washington wrote to Congress saying that he had, 
quote, been particularly attentive to the least symptoms of the smallpox. Hitherto, we have been so fortunate as to have every person removed so soon as not only to prevent any communication, but any apprehension or alarm it might give in the camp. We shall continue the utmost vigilance against this most dangerous enemy. Although smallpox is very deadly, it's not as contagious as some diseases. You have to be in direct contact with someone who is sick in order to catch it. Therefore, quarantines could be relatively effective if strictly enforced. Even so, hundreds of soldiers died of the disease at the Siege of Boston. When General Gage expelled the sick from Boston, Washington had to issue orders to, quote, prevent any of your officers from any intercourse with the people who came out of Boston. As Washington explained, quote, there is great reason to suspect that the smallpox is amongst them, which every precaution must be used to prevent its spreading. In January 1776, the Continentals established a hospital at Dorchester, Massachusetts, to isolate American officers and soldiers who had contracted the disease. Smallpox proved to be an even worse scourge for the Northern Army that invaded Quebec. Almost as soon as Benedict Arnold's forces arrived in December 1775, word of smallpox outbreaks began to circulate. One reason General Montgomery opted to attack Quebec on December 31st was his concern that the disease would only continue to ravage his army. Those who were not sick wanted to leave before they caught it. Few recruits wanted to join the army that appeared to be a breeding ground for smallpox. During the Siege of Quebec, Continentals reported at times more than three-quarters of their soldiers unfit for duty. The inability to implement strict quarantines, as had happened in Boston, meant that the disease ran rampant. When Major General John Thomas was sent to command the army in Canada, he fell ill with smallpox within days of his arrival and quickly died. Smallpox continued to plague the army over the course of the entire war. It was almost certainly the single largest killer of soldiers. One reason smallpox became less of a problem in the later part of the war was inoculations. There had been an inoculation for smallpox available for decades. In fact, there's evidence that the Chinese understood how to perform smallpox inoculations for centuries. Inoculations seem to have reached the Western world in the late 17th century, and it was used in Boston as early as the 1720s. There were, however, some problems with inoculation. Many ministers opposed inoculation as playing God. They believed that disease was a curse from God and that trying to prevent it through actions other than prayer and obedience to God's law was wrong. That said, one of the earliest proponents of inoculation was a minister, Cotton Mather, who greatly encouraged its use in Boston in the early 18th century. Inoculations also first became common as ways of protecting Native Americans and Negro slaves. For many colonists, the practice took on a heathen connotation and was something that was used only for the lower classes. So, religious and racist concerns aside, there were also some good arguments in the Age of Reason for not inoculating. 
One of the big ones was that inoculation actually gave you a mild version of smallpox. Some small percentage of those inoculated, in some cases as much as 2%, died from the inoculation. Another famous New England minister who supported inoculation, Jonathan Edwards, himself received the inoculation and died as a result. Some argued that these dangerous inoculations violated the Hippocratic Oath of Doctors to first do no harm. Beyond that danger, inoculation also made you a carrier, even if you did not get as sick as others. For a period of time, the inoculated person, who seemed relatively healthy, could pass the disease to others who would in turn get the full deadly version of the disease. Thus, inoculation made you a danger to others. Many colonies had laws against inoculation as a result. People did not routinely get inoculated and simply hoped that they would not get sick. By contrast, the British Army did, as a matter of routine, inoculate its soldiers. Unlike civilians, soldiers were likely to come into contact with many different people in their travels and had a higher likelihood of catching the disease at some point. Inoculations meant that they could get sick at a convenient time when they could get proper treatment and be contained, as opposed to getting sick in the field where they could spread the disease and at a time when they might be needed for battle. However, even though soldiers did often receive inoculation, many did not, which is why this was still a problem for General Gage during the Siege of Boston. The Americans had no inoculation plan. As I said, inoculations were illegal in many parts of America. Beyond that, commanders could not afford to have their entire army sick for several weeks while they were in the field and in the face of the enemy. Therefore, they largely relied on isolation measures to keep things under control. As I said, in many places, this was not strict enough to be effective and had devastating results. In some cases, soldiers inoculated themselves against orders and were court-martialed. Now, you may think, how can you punish a soldier for protecting himself? Consider that in making yourself sick, you made yourself unavailable for duty at a possibly critical time. Also, by infecting yourself, you put all of your fellow soldiers at risk since you could spread the disease to them. At the same time, inoculation under the right conditions became the sensible action for most. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, Martha Washington received an inoculation in May 1776 before joining her husband at the command of the army. When General Thomas had planned to take command of the Northern Army in Canada, many members of Congress advised him to get inoculated before he went. Thomas demurred. He wanted to be an example to his men who were not allowed to be inoculated. As a result, his death became an example of what happens when you enter a smallpox-infected area without protection. By early 1777, General Washington was convinced of the necessity of inoculation. In a letter to William Shippen in January, he wrote, Finding the smallpox to be spreading much and fearing that no precaution can prevent it from running through the whole of our army, I have determined that the troops shall be inoculated. This expedient must be attended with some inconveniences and some disadvantages. 
but yet I trust in its consequences will have the most happy effects. Necessity not only authorizes, but seems to require the measure, for should the disorder infect the army in the natural way and rage with its usual virulence, we should have more to dread from it than from the sword of the enemy. If the business is immediately begun and favored with common success, I would fain hope the soldiers would be soon fit for duty, and that in a short space of time we shall have an army not subject to this, the greatest of all calamities that can befall it when taken in the natural way. Even after some officers became convinced of the importance of inoculation, they continued to face opposition. When Major General William Heath announced a plan to inoculate his army, local officials in Massachusetts voted to stop it for fear his inoculated soldiers would spread the disease to local civilians. At times, more than one-third of the Continental Army was unfit for duty, largely due to smallpox. Despite opposition, by 1777, Washington ordered that his soldiers be inoculated and that the new recruits be inoculated and isolated for several weeks before joining the army in the field. Even so, it took time to implement these orders. Washington was still reporting small outbreaks in 1778. Despite some lapses, the inoculations had their intended effect. In 1778 and 1779, the soldiers unfit for duty due to illness dropped from heights of over one-third to less than 10%. It was not until after the war ended that a better inoculation came into being. In 1796, a British scientist named Edward Jenner figured out that a similar but less deadly disease known as cowpox was similar enough to smallpox that the victims of cowpox were immune to getting smallpox. He developed an inoculation that did not subject recipients to even a small risk of death and which would not transmit smallpox to others. Jenner named his inoculation after the Latin name for cowpox, which is vaccinia. And that, boys and girls, is where we get the name vaccine. It would take nearly 200 years of the use of Jenner's vaccine to eradicate smallpox. The last naturally known occurring infection happened in 1977. Smallpox was the worst, but it was far from the only disease that ravaged the continent during the Revolution. Measles, mumps, typhus, typhoid, malaria, influenza, dysentery, and others all struck the army at various times, leading to illness and sometimes death, although the death rates with these other diseases were much lower than for smallpox. When the British army invaded the South in the later part of the war, it suffered greatly from malaria and other tropical diseases. Local patriots who had contracted malaria at earlier times had developed some immunity, thus giving them a real advantage during these campaigns. Many diseases were caused or at least spread by poor conditions. Soldiers would urinate and defecate in the camps rather than digging latrine pits. Although science did not understand germs at the time, there was an understanding that such conditions, in addition to creating a horrible stench, did somehow lead to disease. In 1776, a German manual called 
The Diseases Incident to Armies with a Method of Cure was published in Philadelphia. It gave advice such as providing fresh foods when possible and not cramming soldiers together in small spaces for prolonged periods of time. It also recommended good clothing and selecting dry areas for setting up camps. George Washington put a particular emphasis on cleanliness and ordered punishments for soldiers who did not comply. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who served in the Continental Congress, published a pamphlet called Directions for Preserving the Health of Soldiers, where he divided his advice into five sections, dress, diet, cleanliness, encampments, and exercise. And there are links to many of these original documents on my blog if you want to read them in full. General von Steuben, who was a veteran of the Prussian Army and who's probably best remembered for bringing organized drill to the Continental Army at Valley Forge, was also a big proponent of maintaining clean conditions in order to prevent disease. He wrote that, quote, The preservation of the soldier's health should be a regimental commander's first and greatest care. And as that depends in great measure on their cleanliness and manner of living, he must have a watchful eye over the officers of companies that they pay the necessary attention to their men in those respects. Von Steuben went on to instruct that officers must remove anyone with an infectious disease to a hospital immediately, or if no hospital was available, isolate the soldier to prevent the spread of the infection. He also noted the shared responsibility to keep camps clean for health purposes. Important rules included keeping latrines at least 300 feet away from tents, and that latrine pits, which he called sinks, be filled and redug at least every four days, more often in warm weather. Despite the good advice and efforts to enforce better conditions, I've seen estimates that death rates from disease in the Continental Army were nearly twice that of British and Hessian armies. Part of that can probably be attributed to the more strict implementation of rules among the professional European armies, and also built up immunities among the soldiers who had been exposed to disease over many past campaigns. Part of it could also be attributed to the Continental Army simply having less money to feed, clothe, and provide proper shelter for soldiers in the field. Although this disparity in deaths from disease seemed to narrow over the course of the war, it remained the leading cause of death by far for both sides. Experienced soldiers knew that the real threat did not come from the enemy, it came from an invisible attacker that was far more lethal. Next week, we will look at Burgoyne's Northern Army as the British prepare to embark on what becomes known as the Saratoga Campaign. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, 
and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I want to thank Patreon supporter Mike Hager for his continued support at the Robert Morris Circle level. Mike has been a great supporter of the show now for several months. I really appreciate his commitment that helps cover the costs of producing this podcast. Of course, anyone can help support the show for as little as $2 per month on Patreon.com. You can also make one-time, no-commitment donations to my PayPal account. Believe me, anything helps. Links to both options are on my website at amrevpodcast.com or on my blog. Last week, I had promised that this week I would start talking about the Saratoga campaign by introducing General Burgoyne's Northern Army that would invade upstate New York from Canada. But since last week, I decided that before we embark on a months-long journey that will cover the Saratoga and Philadelphia campaigns that take place over the rest of 1777, I wanted to address something else. I very much try to avoid modern topics on this podcast, even in the after show, and have tried to follow a strict chronological pattern to my episodes. But as I sit here in March 2020, The corona or COVID-19 virus is ramping up its spread around the world and has officially been declared a pandemic. Although it's only killed a few hundred worldwide so far, everyone expects it to get much worse before it gets better. As a result, disease and fighting disease has been on my mind a lot. I thought it would be interesting to see how the Continental Army dealt with disease during the American Revolution Hence, I added this week's episode kind of last minute and pushed back my introduction to the Saratoga campaign until next week. I hope you found the episode interesting, even if it really isn't part of the specific timeline that I've been following. What I found really incredible is how differently we look at a pandemic today than was the case in the 18th century. Just think about the fact that the death rate for the inoculation to smallpox around 2%, is probably higher than the expected death rate from the COVID-19 virus. I point this out not to get into a debate about our reaction to the latest pandemic. A 2% death rate can still result in millions of deaths, and for many groups the rate is much higher. My point is only that death rates that we consider horrific today would have been considered an aspiration in the 18th century. That is, in great thanks to modern medicine and the amazing advances it has made over the last couple of centuries. Those in the 18th century simply did not have the advantages of modern medicine. They simply didn't expect to grow old. When George Washington died at the age of 67, he had already outlived all nine of his siblings and half-siblings. 
Although Washington had no children of his own, his wife Martha had four children from a previous marriage. Two of those were already dead by the time she married Washington. A third died as a teenager. One boy, Jackie, survived to adulthood and had four children of his own, but even he died as a young man of a disease, probably typhus, during the war. Even George Washington himself probably could have had many years ahead of him if he had had a few antibiotics rather than doctors who insisted on bleeding him in an attempt to balance his humors. This one family's example shows that early death from disease was the norm. That norm, thankfully, is now usually a thing of the past. Also, disease was statistically a larger threat to soldiers than the enemy. One reason the soldiers may have looked forward to battle was that it had a lower chance of death than sitting around in military quarters for a year. A battle posed a small risk of death, but could possibly end the war or at least shorten the course of it, thus reducing the risk of death from disease. Therefore, fighting a battle and risking one's life on the battlefield might actually be a rational response to a soldier who wanted to reduce his chances of dying during the war. Anyway, if you want to read more about disease and how it impacted the American Revolution, I've listed a number of interesting books and articles on my blog. Some of the topics even go beyond the war and talk about colonial diseases or more generally the history of military diseases. If you want to check any of them out, go to blog.amrevpodcast.com and take a look at the whole list. It even includes some of the original health recommendations that were written during the Revolution. For my book recommendation this week, I went with Medicine and the American Revolution, How Diseases and Their Treatments Affected the Colonial Army, by Oscar Rees. It covers a number of different diseases and how they impacted the war. For example, there's a chapter about the smallpox during the Quebec campaign. There's another chapter on malaria during the Southern Campaign, one on syphilis during the New York Campaign, and scabies at Valley Forge. The author also covers the medical department as well as the condition of prisoners. It's an interesting look at the war from a medical perspective. The book itself is not very long, only about 200 pages, not including extensive notes, index, and appendix. The author, Oscar Reese, was a medical doctor who wrote several other interesting books on medicine in early America and other issues in the colonial era. He also served in World War II, and sadly, he passed away in 2004. If you want to read more, look for Medicine and the American Revolution. For my online recommendation this week, I went with the Journal of James Thatcher. He was a surgeon in the Continental Army and kept a journal during his time in the war. He made a book after the war using that journal. There's a free ebook version of his journal available on archive.org, although it is an 1860 reprint of the original 1823 edition. It's a great primary source look at the war through the eyes of a surgeon. Like most doctors of his time, Thatcher did not go to medical school. There were, in fact, only two medical schools in America before the Revolution. King's College in New York, or what we today call Columbia University, and also Philadelphia College, which is today the University of Pennsylvania. And even those two medical schools only got started in the 1760s, a few years before the war began. 
Medicine at the time was more of a skilled job. Most doctors never attended any medical school and maybe not even college. They learned their trades by apprenticing with a doctor for a few years and then going out on their own. That's how Thatcher got his start. Anyway, I thought it was an interesting read. I've put a link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Also, if you're not crazy about reading ebooks, there is an Amazon link on my blog if you want a paper copy of the book as well. It was reprinted recently in the last few years. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>